so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, where you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners to our conclusion of our kind of trek through the book of Romans. We are going to finish this thing up and uh, hopefully I'll be able to make it through without coughing. Still kind of battling a little bit as I was over chapter 15, but God sustained and was able to allow me to go about 50 minutes or so with just maybe a handful of coughs. So we're going to try to do the same thing this time. This is, there's going to be a lot of names here. I'm just going to tell you up front. I don't necessarily know if I'm pronouncing all of these names correctly, but this is probably one of the more challenging aspects of this entire book for me is pronouncing these names because in my estimation, as I've gone through this book, to me there is a a relatively, and and I say this, um, I say this very lightly, a, a, a relatively easy understanding of the book of Romans when we have all the pieces of the, of the equation put into it. And I hope that this has been something that as you've gone through this journey with me, that you've been blessed by, you've been encouraged, you've been challenged, you've been informed, enlightened, whatever word you want to throw in there, as long as it is something of the progression of our faith, as that's going to come to play later on. Um, as long as it is something that has progressed you to a closer abiding union and relationship with Jesus Christ, then, man, praise God. And so we're going to get into this in chapter 16. Uh, So welcome if you're a new time listener or if you've been with me from the beginning. um, Welcome. Hopefully this is going to be a blessing for you. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Concrea, that you may may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Excuse me. So right off the bat, we've got kind of a practical wisdom little nugget that we're going to need to kind of dive into. And so with this one, there's a lot of discussion today in the church as to whether or not women are allowed to be in a leadership role of some capacity over men. Um, Let me read this from what Paul, who is the same author, writes in 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's what he says. In verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And he goes on and talks about some other things that I've addressed before, but I'm not going to right now. I want to kind of hone in on what he says there, because then right after this, he gets into the qualifications of an elder and a deacon. So what does he say? What do we need to use as a carrying device going into the rest of it? I do not permit, with the authority of God, I do not permit a woman to do two things. One, to teach doctrine, which is what what the Greek word there means, 
to teach doctrine and instruct in doctrine over men, nor is she to have a position of authority over men. So that one is an irrefutable thing. So we can't bypass that and ignore it and then say because we have some sort of indirect or circular reasoning type notion here in Romans 16, as I'm going to break down even the word of what it means for diaconus here, that we have some sort of way around it. Here's what even goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he's going to start it here in verse 11 when he talks about deacons, and it's very important. He starts the concept of deacons about verse 8, and he gives some qualifications, but then he hones in on something very specific here in verses 11 through 12. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Before I get into verse 12, let me just ask you this question. He's specifically referencing the deacon's wives. Now, unless we're going to get into an even further uh, big no-no of Scripture, am I to now state that a woman is to have a wife and that it's condoned and acceptable before God? Or am I going to look at the Greek word that's used there for wives being gune, is a word that is very specific to a female, not a nair, which is to the male. He says, their wives, Gune, must meet the qualifications also in order for this man to be holding the office of a deacon. He goes on, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Now, my topic is not going to be what this qualification is by saying one wife. That, you can go back and listen to my podcast over First Timothy chapter 3. What I will say is he uses very specific generic terms here of saying, or gender terms, not generic, very specific gender terms in aner and gune. A deacon is to be the husband or the man of one wife or of one woman. So he gives a very clear qualification that a deacon is to not be a female. So why is that important? Because you might be looking at this and say, well, my translation says servant. What are you talking about? The word that's used there, diaconus, is the same word that's used for deacon. Now, we have to understand what is the role of a deacon. It's simply what the word translates to, a servant. However, that can have different forms as that kind of carries out. And in the form of a deacon, it is having a position of authority over men in the church, something Paul forbids. So what are we talking about here? Who is this Phoebe, a servant of the church? It's exactly that. It's in some capacity, this woman <clears throat> has been given a position, which is what the, the Greek word means, diaconus, a position of being charitable, a position of using one's resources for the service and the care of somebody else. Okay, This woman has been given a position of some regard in the church in order to serve others well, that's what it goes on. For she has been a patron. The only time this word is used in all the New Testament, it's the word prostatis. It means a position of serving others. Diaconus, that Greek word for deacon, it's a position of serving others. Now, before you start thinking that maybe he is referencing a deacon because the word is diaconus and it means that, um, let me show you here real quick... Um, in 2 Corinthians 11.15, if we're going to say that it has to mean a person who is in a position in the church of serving others. Here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 15. So it is no surprise if his diaconus 
also disguised themselves as diaconus of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You know who Paul's talking about there? He's talking about the servants of Satan who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. I don't believe that this word for servant is unconditionally attached and applied to a position of office in the church. It is simply the status of somebody who is a servant. And that is, that is the role of a deacon. Just as it was for a woman to be the, considered the helper unto the man in a marriage. It's the same way as a deacon unto an elder. The office of deacon is actually a very important office in the church. It is, in a sense, a go-between between the flock and the elders. It's a person who serves the flock and who serves the elders. Just like a wife unto the children and unto her husband. It's the exact same thing. So I personally, I don't understand why there's many churches out there that don't have deacons. Because I think it's a pretty important thing. I, I think that is something that should be done. But I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that Phoebe was a deacon. Because of the qualifications that Paul lists. However, I do believe she was a person of prominence in the church. And who was somebody that was supposed to be very reputable in the church. She just didn't have a position of authority as a deacon would have. So, hopefully that all made sense. We're going to keep going into chapter, or into verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I, on the heels of what we just talked about, I have had a discussion with a pastor of a church a long time ago that I used to serve at, um, which I was the worship pastor as well as the associate pastor, kind of being groomed to take over the church. Um, we had a conflict and one of those conflicts was on the topic we just talked about, the place of a woman in church, of what that should look like, of, of how much authority and power should she have. And it's fascinating because when, you know we disagreed on this, so we were having this conversation, we were having this meeting, it was just me and him in his office, and I said, so what scriptures do you have to support? And so he... Um, it didn't have any, um, honestly, um, other than a few that were just kind of like indirect reasoning towards. But one of his biggest points, one of his main em em emphasized points was the fact that Prisca's name was listed first. Obviously giving her prominence over Aquila. And I... I <laughs> And internally, I was chuckling. It's like, really? Like, that's going to trump what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and what the qualifications are in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and then what he even goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it's like 26 through 27. I do not permit a woman to teach. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Like, she is to be silent in the church in terms of such things. That's your argument against it? And so I happened to be relatively prepared going into that. And so I knew that in Scripture, Prisca and Aquila are mentioned six times. Three times Prisca is listed first, and three times Aquila is listed first. Now, what am I to do with that? Because now it's a 50-50 crab shoot. And I want you to understand, people come away. And, and let me tell you how this conversation ended with this pastor. I gave him my verses in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I gave him the verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I brought up 1 Corinthians 14. I brought up some other passages that are there as well, going even into Titus chapter 1. And in the end, here's what he said. I can't refute 
those scriptures that you shared. And I said, okay, we're getting somewhere. This guy is looking at the Word of God, realizing that he's wrong, and that the Word of God is right. And so I said, okay, so how do we move forward together on this? And he says, I, chill, I still choose to believe what I do. And so I had to look at that pastor, and I had to say, then I can no longer submit under your leadership if you are going to intentionally look at the Word of God. And come into an alliance and an agreement with it, but still choose to believe what is contrary to it. That actually goes into some of what we're going to talk about at the very end of this chapter, midway through. You're going to choose to believe what you want instead of what he says. And I couldn't submit to that. And so I stepped down. But I want you to see the foolishness oftentimes of how we choose to reason away scriptural, doctrinal truths that are absolute simply by reasonings of our own mind. So greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. I, I love this because I think it's something that we miss today. We always think church is in a building. But that wasn't the way that the church functioned for the first few hundred years, if not even longer than that, until Constantine came along and made Christianity legal by combining Christianity and paganism, bringing about the Roman Catholicism that we know of today. As a pagan individual who spearheaded the beginning of Christianity becoming legal, by combining Christian principles and precepts along with paganistic traditions. Hence, the Roman Catholic Church. Its foundation and its forging. And that's when temples began to get built. That's when these cathedrals began to get built. That's when people began congregating no longer in their homes, but in these buildings. But the early church, that wasn't how they started. Now, I'm not saying that I have anything necessarily wrong with people congregating in buildings. What I am saying is that I believe we've lost the intimacy of what the church started out as. Of what the blueprint of God um, ordained from the beginning for the church. That we were supposed to be a people who were intimate. A people who used what we had and learned the gift of hospitality. Now we go to church on a Sunday morning, at least here in America, and then we hardly ever see anyone ever after that. We don't open up our home to people oftentimes. We might use our home occasionally for some things of the glory of God, but for the most part, that's our home. That's our domain. And as a result, there's this separation between people and the church where we think that the things that are ours are ours and not all. Remember what it talked about in Acts 2 and then Acts chapter 4? It says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to them were actually theirs, but they had all things in common. They shared. I know, it's, it's a foreign concept to most people. What's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. But I love what Jesus talks about when he says if anyone is going to forsake you know, wives and houses and lands and all this stuff, he says they are going to receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. Why does he say that? In fact, he doesn't even say um, in the second list, wives. And I don't have time to go into this, but I do think it's a fascinating concept because he says, here's what you're going to inherit. You're not going to inherit your brother's wife. But what you will inherit 
is you become a family with all those who are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ and what's theirs belongs to you. If you're willing to let go of your life in this life, you will receive a hundred times that in this life because you come into a body in which where one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member is you know, rejoicing, we all rejoice. What happens to one happens to us. We share the burden. So I love the fact that he says that this is how the early church first operated. Church functioned out of their homes, not out of a building. He says, greet my beloved Epianetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. This is where it's going to get really challenging for me, guys. He says, greet Mary. That's a simple one. Why can't they all be like that? Who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Trephania and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. And I'm going to stop right there just real quick because I want to point something out. This is um, speculatory. This is not definitive. At least I have not found anything that makes this definitive. But I want to share something with you just, just real brief around Rufus. Now, Rufus is not a common name. It's not a common name back then, nor is it a common name today. What we do know is that this, if I remember my studies on this correctly, Rufus is more, it's an obscure name. We'll just put it that way. But there's a passage where there's another Rufus who is mentioned several years before this, in which Romans, I believe, is probably written somewhere in the 50s, um, AD, uh, at some point, roughly 15 to 20, maybe 25 years prior to this, there was a little boy that's mentioned in Scripture whose name happens to be Rufus. And it's always been this fascinating thing for me. Again, this is speculatory, but I think that there is some merit to it. There's some grounds for speculating this. So take it as you will. But here's what he says in Mark 15. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now we know this, that he's, here's this man who's got these two little boys who's with him, Alexander and Rufus, and he is commissioned to carry this cross. And so he does for the rest of the journey, whatever it was in that Via de la Rosa, that mile and a half journey, at some point in that mile and a half, he was, turned, he was commissioned to carry that beam that completed the cross. And Jesus was there with him. And, and I want you to put your, your perspective on Alexander and Rufus for a moment. Here's this man who is carrying this cross along with Jesus. And they see this Jesus and the blood that's there. And the blood transfers to Simon as he's carrying this cross all the way up to Golgotha. And they get there. And I can't imagine the impact that it had on Simon. I can't imagine the impact it had on Alexander Rufus. And I'm sure that there was probably a camping out there to see what would take place. Like, why is this guy being so brutally treated? 
They put the cross up there. They see Jesus. They see the earthquake or they feel the earthquake that takes place at his death. And, and when his spirit's given up and they hear maybe even the centurion who's there, he says, truly this man was the son of God. And they see the events that take place as a result of everything that happens afterwards. I can't imagine it did not impact this little kid named Rufus. And quite possibly... This is the Rufus that Paul is referencing who became a believer in Jesus Christ all because, and listen to this dads, all because there was a dad who went before him and he chose to carry a cross. He chose to be an example. He chose to surrender his will to the will of the Savior. And this Rufus very well gave his life to the Lord and became a follower of him. And so you dads, I want you to listen up again. I'm not saying that this is an absolute. I'm saying that this is a possible. But what I will tell you that's absolute is that your example to your children will absolutely impact them the rest of their life. So make it the example of following Christ by carrying that cross to the end. This is what he talks about in John chapter 17, in which, you know, it's one of my favorite passages to link to Ephesians 5 when he talks about husbands loving your wives and wash them in the water of the word. And I think John 17 kind of gives us that understanding. In John 17, 17, he says this, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What is Jesus saying? He says, truth is going to wash those who come underneath it. And how are we supposed to live out that truth? We devote ourselves, consecrate ourselves to the work of God and provide the footsteps of the faith in order for those who would see it and be underneath it would follow this, those same footsteps to the same place that we went. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And that's what he says in Psalm 85, 13, that righteousness goes before him, making his footsteps away. Jesus charted the way of the faith. He consecrated himself to God. He says, I'm not going to let any distractions derail me from doing the total will of God. And to be who he's called me to be, I will devote myself to the service unto the king. Thus providing the pathway of sanctification for all who would follow after me. And husbands, it's the same thing for you. It's not that you make your wife your first priority. It's not that your family is your first ministry. God is your first ministry. Bar none. There is nothing that comes equal to or greater than that. Stop making your family an idol. Start making God your sole pursuit. The one that you consecrate yourself unto. And in so doing, you provide the footsteps in order for all who come after you, as the waterfall of truth would sanctify them into truth. So it goes on, he says, in verse 14, Greet uh, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Pastrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, all the churches of Christ greet you. We made it. <coughs> we made it. 
Through that list, praise God. Again, I don't know if I pronounced it right. Uh, however, I think that the Lord allowed me to get pretty close, if, if not pretty close on all of them. So what are we going to talk about here in verse 16? Because this is an uncomfortable one, for, especially for a lot of guys. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What is that? Well, four times in Scripture this is commanded by Paul for the church of God to, create, to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, there's not a whole lot of way to wiggle our way around what this word for kiss means. Culturally speaking, it's very um, likely that this kiss was something that denoted on the cheek, possibly even on the lips. As some cultures, that's what they do. For me as an American, I don't greet people like this. So what are we to do with this? Because this is not something that's a suggestion. This is a command. Just as much of a command as anything else that we have in Scripture. So what are we to do with this? I want to tell you what my take is on this. I don't think that it's about um, mimicking uh, the actual culture and the tradition of the day to make sure that if he says greet one another with a holy kiss and they kiss each other on the lips, that that's what we do. Here's what I think. The Greek word that's used there for holy kiss is hagios philema. And it's rooted in philema being the root uh, or having the root of phileo. It's a brotherly affection. It's something that is supposed to be sacred. It's something that's supposed to be set apart. So this holy kiss that's there, I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that, that Paul is writing saying everybody in the church has to greet each other with a holy kiss or you're in sin. Go ahead and pucker up, give him a kiss on the cheek, give him a kiss on the lips, because if you're not doing it, then you don't really have a true affection towards them. Here's what I will say. I don't believe that that's the case. What I believe is, is he's saying, look, there is supposed to be this set-apart affection for the body of Christ. That, that's a deeper affection than any affection you have on this earth. I don't care if it's your family, your wife, your children. There is supposed to be a set-apart affection for the body of Christ. And I want you to go out there and I want you to show it. Whether that's a kiss on the cheek, whether that's a handshake, whether that's a hug. More so, I think he's saying, let us not love and just talk, but in deed and in truth. I want you to go out there and love the body of Jesus Christ. In the way that you're commanded. And you might ask, well, what's the way that we're commanded? It's exactly what Jesus tells us. In John 13, 34 through 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. You want to know how you're supposed to love the body of Christ? The same way Jesus loved us. In fact, he talks about it in 1 John 3 where he says, This is how you can know you pass from death to life if you have love from the brothers. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. If somebody says that I love God but hates his brother or loves his brother less than he ought, you're a liar. That's literally what 1 John 4 is telling us. Galatians 6, 7-10 tells us, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. Greet one another with a holy affection. It's a set apart, sacred affection that is reserved for the body of Jesus Christ. So if you have an, an eros, which is a Greek word that's used for love also, but it's more of the sensuous love. If you have your sensuous love for your wife as being greater 
in your heart than the philema or the phileo love of the body of Christ, then let me just tell you, you have it out of order. And I see this all the time. Everybody talks about how my wife or my family is my first love. Let me just tell you, man, you're going to give an account for that because that's considered idolatry. And the word says you're worse than an unbeliever. You don't believe me. Let me turn it to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, just for a moment. Because this is the passage that many people get incorrect today. In this passage, you're going to hear, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let me ask you this. What about not providing for your household makes you deny the faith? Because I can tell you even Peter denied his household. When Jesus called him to follow, Peter had a wife and family. We know this because it says that they went to Peter's mother-in-law. So we know that Peter had a family. But this is what Jesus tells them. I need you to be willing to forsake all in order to follow me. Now, I'm not advocating we go and we just abandon our family, but I am advocating exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 29-35. The appointed time is going short from now on those who have wives live as though they had none. Wait, what? Is he just telling me to deny the faith? Because that's what he says in 1 Timothy 5, 8. Or are we misinterpreting what he says in 1 Timothy 5, 8? You see, what he's talking about, this word for relatives, let me just, I'll break it down briefly for you. But this word for relatives in verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, is a Greek word, and I'm just going to simplify it for you without breaking it down and showing the other, the other two times that the word is used in Scripture going on into the household. Essentially it's this, those who belong to you by an earthly blood. So let me say it again, but if anyone does not provide for those who belong to him by earthly blood, family, He says, then you're in sin. That's not a good thing. That's not advisable. It's not something that pleases the Lord. He says, and especially for members of his household. That is a Greek word used only three times in all the scripture. Once in Ephesians 2, once in the passage that I read in Galatians 6. uh, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. And then here. Only three times in all scripture and every single time it references the body of Christ. Every time. The direct context of the passage is referencing the body of Christ. And so here's what these two words mean. Relatives, the first one that's used, is those who belong to you by earthly blood. The second one, those who belong to you by heavenly blood. It's those in whom you are attached to through the blood of a heavenly source, namely Jesus Christ. And he says, and if you do not take care of them, then you have denied the faith. And you are worse than an unbeliever. So I would say that there is a pretty big attachment to this concept of the holy kiss. That we aren't supposed to just give a peck on the cheek once a week on a Sunday. We're supposed to love them as Christ loved us. That's the example. That's the cross. And it's our job to pick it up. Go on, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now, this is a, can be 
a difficult passage to reason through and to kind of navigate our way through it. What we know that Paul's talking about here is he says there's going to be possibly people among you, people who come into your circles, as Jude would talk about, they eat with you at your love feasts without fear. There's going to be people around you, whatever capacity that is, there's going to be people that you need to be watching out for who are going to cause divisions among you and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine of absolute truth in accordance with the scriptures. There's going to be people who are going to come and they're going to twist the scriptures to their own benefit. There's going to be people who are going to not know the truth of God's word, not heed to the truth of God's word, and they're going to take the word and they're going to ignore it, twist it, massage it, or whatever, in order to follow what they want to follow. They may or may not claim that they're a Christian. But he says, avoid them. Let me me say it again. Avoid them. The people who are out there twisting the word of God to their own sensuous mind of saying, yeah, I know that's what it says, but I don't want to heed to that. I'm going to choose to believe what I want. He says, you eclino them. You turn aside, deviate, and even shun. And you might be thinking, well, how's that love? How's it loving God and His truth by not doing it? I just read with the kids in Revelation um, today. We're going through the book of Revelations and we were talking about the church of Thyatira. And I believe that is in Revelation 2 at the end of it. Might be, yeah, at 2. He says, you're doing some good things well, church in Thyatira. But here's what I have against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who is teaching and seducing people into sexual morality and essentially to live in a sensuous way of whatever pleases them. He says, you better repent and you better do something about this because I'm going to come throw her on a sickbed and all those who do what she's doing, I'm going to throw into a sickbed, possibly even kill. Unless you repent. So we see that Jesus hates false teaching. Jesus hates it when people twist his word arrogantly. They twist his word into something that it doesn't say. And he says, you also need to watch out for them. And you need to avoid them. And you see the same thing that happens in Jeremiah 29, I'm sorry, 23 and 16 through 17. Here's how it was, here's how it took place in Israel. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. You're good. It's the same thing that Korah did to Moses. Was that Numbers 14, I think? Somewhere in in that range? Where, maybe 16... Where Korah, no, uh, I believe Moses is even his own cousin, comes to him and he trounces in front of him and he's basically like, dude, we're all holy. We're all good. We've all been, quote unquote, forgiven. You can't pose this authoritative figure. Who are you to pose this authority over us? You can't tell us what to do. And that's how many people look at the word of God today, even in the church. I know what Titus 2, 3 through 5 says, but I don't want to listen to that because I want to do what I want to do. 
I know that 1 Timothy chapter 2, I was talking to a lady about this one time before, where she says she knows that God called her to be a pastor. A person who would be in an authoritative position over men and women and to teach the word. That he's calling her to do that. I'm like, but 1 Timothy 2 contradicts that calling. She's like, oh, I, I know that that's what it says, but I know what God told me. So I'm, I'm sorry. The Lord told me is no excuse for the Bible says, Vody Bauckham says. If the Bible dictates absolute truth, then you don't get to violate it because of what you want to do. And yet, it's out there. It's rampant. And just as it was in Israel where there was false prophets who came in, they were speaking twisted things and lies, massaging and manipulating the truth of the Word of God in order to appease people and flatter them. He says, you better watch out for people like that. And Jude, <coughs> there's only one chapter in it. Um, so verses 17 through 19, here's what he says. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Same exact message. He says there's going to be people among you who are going to be twisting the word of God to their own destruction. They're going to be following their own ungodly passions. And he says, and I want you to avoid them. Now, if you need a second witness on this one, in 2 John 1, here's what he says, starting in verse 8. He says, watch yourselves. Same thing. Didn't he say to watch out for those who cause divisions? He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I don't know if it gets much more clear than that. It's just things that we don't necessarily want to obey today because it seems harsh. But let me just tell you, one of the most loving things that you can do is to draw a line in the sand of what is absolute and what is relative, what is holy and what is profane. Because it gives people a standard. It gives people something that they need to look towards and shoot for in a way that pleases God. This is why he says in Philippians 1, 9 through 10, that we are to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. This is why it talks about in Romans 12, 1 through 2, that we should discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is why he talks about, um, I just had it in my mind and now it left me, so maybe I'm not supposed to share it. But there are other passages all throughout scripture that talk about that we are to, <coughs> excuse me, a 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself before God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be shamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We can be displeasing to the Lord if we violate and venture away from truth. So what's the best way to make sure that somebody's pleasing to the Lord? Speak the truth to them. So that they have a standard to walk by. And if there's people among you who refuse to listen to the word of God and to truth and to the standard that's been given to us. And they arrogantly follow their own way creating contrary doctrines. Avoid them and have nothing to do with them. Eclino. Turn away and deviate from their presence. He says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. 
but their own appetites, which is a Greek word, kolia. It's the heart as the seed of thought, feeling, and choice. He says, if there's somebody among you who they're going by their own feelings, if they're going by their own choices, if they're going by their own thoughts, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it's the end of the way to death, right? Proverbs 16, I think it's 25 or 27. If there's a person who is being governed by their old man, the heart of the old man in which you determine your, um, your will, you determine what you're going to do, he says, then you need to step back and you need to deviate from their course. If they are unrepentant and don't want to listen to truth. And how are they going to deceive people? By smooth talk and flattery. They're going to make you feel good about yourself in your rebellion to the word of God. They're going to fill you with vain hopes as Jeremiah 23 talked on. They're going to tell you, you know what? Even though you are rebelling against the Lord, nothing bad is going to happen to you because God loves you. His wrath won't come upon you. You know what? In Romans 13, he talks about very plainly to the church in Rome where he says you need to be in subjection to the authorities not only to avoid God's wrath but for the sake of conscience. What does he, what does he mean there? He says that if you are not obedient to what God has prescribed for you in his word, you can come under the wrath of God. Same premise in James 4. He's talking about you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's talking to the beloved. He's talking to the church. And you might say, well, but he gives more grace. If you're going to distort and manipulate and massage what grace really is, then you're going to miss the truth of that passage. Grace is not the overlooking your sin, as many people try to say it today. The grace of God is the ability to empower you to overcome sin. So what he's stating there is, yeah, you're jacking up. You're messing up. You have made a mockery of following me. You are an adulterer against me. But I will give you the grace that is needed if you repent, you double-minded. If you cleanse your hands, you sinners. If you repent and uphold my grace, I will give you the authority to make it anew. As he says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I will give you the grace to overcome your failures and the sins and your rebellion that you have done against me and be brought back into a relation with me if you rely on that grace to overcome your sin. But these people... They abuse grace. They teach it incorrectly. It's just what Jude prophesies. When he says in verse 3 of Jude, he says that, Though I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, I feel it more necessary to write to you to contend for the faith. For there are people who are creeping in among you who turn the grace of God into sensuality or into a license to sin. Saying that, oh, it's okay. God forgives. It's okay. God's grace covers. But they're denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, in the process. He says, you need to avoid people like that. It says, and they deceive the hearts of the naive, the people who are simple, the people who don't understand the word of God, who don't know how to discern good from evil. That's who they deceive. 
And that's why we have so many large churches out there because nobody reads the word anymore. So a pastor can say what he wants to from the pulpit and everybody's going to buy it hook, line, and sinker because it sounds good. They don't want to do the, the legwork to find truth. They're just going to listen to what he says because it sounds good. And you know what? It makes me feel good too. It gives me the warm fuzzies. God's grace covers all my sin. I've been forgiven of everything, past, present, future sins. Whenever I pray to prayer to ask Jesus into my heart, I don't have to change anything in my life. Sign me up. I get my get out of jail free card. Heck yeah, I'll go to that church when it doesn't interfere with my daily life. Forget about the cross. And if I want to follow him, I have to deny myself. Forget about what Galatians 5.24 says when it says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its desires and passions. Forget those things. I'm going to live it up. And I got people who are telling me that I can do it. And get into heaven? Heck yeah. Sign me up. Avoid people who teach that heresy. He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. It goes into Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 when he talks about it, that solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. If you are not constantly getting into his word, studying it, to find what is good, and as Charles Spurgeon puts, what is almost good. And the dis- distinction between the two and you might be one of those who's led astray. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cordus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So just bring it up real quick in Galatians 1, 8-9. Paul says, if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one that I preach to you, let them be accursed. There is only one gospel. There is only one absolute truth. And that gospel and that absolute truth is the one that God will utilize to strengthen you for his good pleasure. And this is the reason that Paul is writing this book in Romans. As we're about to get into is he begins it and he ends it with the same premise. I'm writing to bring about an obedience to the true faith in Jesus Christ. Not to what the world is making it and even today not to what the church has made it. But what it is. He is able to. To strengthen you. So if you're not finding the strength in order to accomplish the will of God, it's because you're not utilizing His. You don't have the strength in and of yourself. But He does. And He is able to strengthen you if you're willing to be strengthened. And there's requirements for that. Essentially, humility. He says, I give grace to the humble, but I reject the proud. So if you want the grace of God, the empowerment of heaven, the divine influence in your life in order to achieve what God wants you to achieve in this life, then that means you must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So if you don't have the strength, check your humility level. He says, In the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ago but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all <clears throat> nations according to the command of the eternal God. To bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul's writing this entire book. 
beginning and end, bookending it with this principle. I want you to be obedient to the true faith. I don't want you to be obedient to the law of Moses because you have to realize you've been delivered from that. I don't want you to be obedient to the law of sin because you have to realize you've been delivered from that. You are now become an overcomer through Jesus Christ that the sin that once held you captive, you are no longer under its domain because God has given you the authority to overcome. So he says, I want you to know the right faith And I want you to be obedient to the right faith. That's it. That's Paul's bookend. Beginning and end and everything in between is to bring about (coughs) an obedience to the faith. That was once and for all delivered to us. You can go look at it, Romans 1 through 6. He says the exact same thing. But the concept is, is that he doesn't want us to just have a faith that sits, but a faith that walks. You look at Joshua chapter 1, and I think he even talked about it in Deuteronomy. God tells them, everywhere that the sole of your foot treads, you will have dominion. When you cross over this Jordan, and you come into this promised land, and the land that's got everything that God has promised for his people at their disposal, right there. He says, I want you to know that everywhere that your foot treads, you will have dominion. So how is that significant for us today? It's the exact same thing. If you have a stagnant faith, if your faith is dead, as James 2 puts it, that does not have an action of works put towards it, that faith is inactive and you will not have dominion and the power of God evident in your life. But if you choose to walk out that faith, if you choose to not just sit on it like the parable of the talents, but you choose to tread with the sole of your foot and move forward in faith, then you will see the power of God on display in your life. So the whole premise of Romans is for Paul to bring about a faith that walks, not sits. Y'all be blessed.